Deuteronomy 7 and 8. These chapters are part of the section that is Deuteronomy 5 through 11. This is Moses' final farewell. These are his last words to the children of Israel. And in chapters 1 through 3 and then chapter 4, we saw more or less a historical review of what had brought them to that place and, and Moses' introductory statement, which is basically to keep the commandments and keep the law as you go into the promised land. Then chapter 5 through 11 lays out general principles related to those things. Starting last week with chapters 5 and 6, which chapter 6 included the famous Shema, the greatest commandment of the entire Bible, according to Christ Jesus, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, right? And that uh, the Lord is one. We talked about what that meant and, and had some fun talking about the Trinity last week. This is going to continue and it's going to talk more about the people. So if last week was all about God and who he is and why that is relevant to his urge to keep the law, this is going to now come at it from the angle of, and who are you as God's people, and why should you keep his covenant? And there's an awful lot for us to learn here tonight. Because as Israel prepared to go into the promised land, their journey was finished in one sense, meaning they had left Egypt, and they were on their way back, and there it was, uh, when they cross the Jordan River, it's going to say that the pillar of cloud is going to ascend up into heaven and not go before them anymore. The man is not going to come anymore because they've arrived. They've finished. But they were not finished. <laughs> Life goes on. Once you get to where God's taking you, there's more to do. There's more to learn. And just as Israel was saved in one single moment at the Exodus, they can point back to the day and say, God led us out of Egypt on this day and struck the Egyptians with all the plagues and the, and the Red Sea. That was an event. It's over. We're saved. But they were not finished. Also, we were saved at a single moment. When Jesus Christ died on the cross... That provided salvation for everybody. Actually, technically, we should say when Christ rose from the dead, although it's all of a piece, of course. When Christ died and rose again, ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of his Father, salvation was won. In your own life, there was a moment where you believed and were baptized and you passed from death to life and your eyes were opened and all the other great New Testament metaphors we have. But both of those cases started with an event but the enjoyment of that salvation grows over time. Your experience of that salvation deepens over time. The Israelites, when they didn't have water in the wilderness, they were free, but they were not enjoying that freedom like they would when they were at rest in the promised land and there was an abundant rainfall, for example. So in the same way, for you and I, when we are saved, we're saved. That's called justification, to take us back to Romans. But there's an ongoing increase in your enjoyment and experience of your salvation. And we call that process sanctification. That's a technical theology term. The Bible will kind of not blur the lines, but they'll, they'll use different words to describe it. But the point is this is the process of being made more righteous and made more like Jesus. Overcoming hang-ups and hurdles in your life. Going through tough situations that, that function as trials and temptations for you. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is compared in the Bible to a walk, that you're walking down a road. It's compared to a fight, that the battle will be over soon. And Peter is comparing us to a plant. Jesus did that a lot too, right? Grow 
get better, get stronger, grow deeper in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growth and progression are essential parts of discipleship. Of a Christian, you should always be growing and progressing. And the reason I'm going so into this introduction so long is there are some folks that are rather uncomfortable with talk of growth or progression in the Christian life because they say, isn't that saying that you, what, weren't you saved before? Well, yes, but the Bible is very clear. When you are saved, that's the beginning of your walk. That's not the end. Pilgrim's progress, he lets go of his burden at the cross at the beginning of the story, and then he's got all that journey to make with all the ups and downs that he's going to face. It's the same thing for you and me. And I think also, we all want to do better. If you sit back one day and say, well, I think I'm just about as holy as is possible to get. I really don't, I don't think that there's anywhere for me to improve. That's kind of the mark of it. Isn't that the mark of an amateur in something? A master of, of painting or of landscaping or whatever it is, is always able to pick apart where it could have been better, right? People look at it, whoa, this is amazing. He goes, yeah, but look, if, I, if you look very carefully, the eyes aren't quite even, or maybe I used a different shade of brown over here. An amateur, makes a painting that everybody looks at and kind of goes, Ugh. and they go, where do you think you could improve? I, I think it's perfect. And it's like, you haven't even developed the capacity to evaluate yourself yet. And Jesus Christ, the same thing with us. He, he says, I want to show you how to improve and do better, how to leave behind old vices, how to know Jesus's voice better. And these chapters are going to instruct the Israelites how to do that and, and us as well. There's five different pieces we're going to look at in here, starting with chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. When the Lord your God, he's continuing now, there's no, there's no chapter breaks in the speech, but it just helps us with our own organization. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must haram, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So, so much for this being like a nationalist religion, right? Well, we're always amazing, so God just does stuff for us. He goes, no, nah, same thing's going to happen to you if you do the same stuff they do. But verse 5, thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were slaves in Egypt. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." So we're, we're still continuing what they're supposed to do. And he talks again about the haram. We've told about that. Uh, that is the word for devote. And it means to devote to destruction. It means to destroy with a holy purpose. And this is what they are to do to these Canaanite nations. 
And we will talk, as I've said many times, it keeps on coming up, but we are going to get to it. When we get to Joshua, we are going to cover every facet of this subject of the destruction of the nations. One reason is because God is judging these nations. The Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, I would judge the Amorites now, but their iniquity is not complete. The idea being they haven't done enough for me to destroy them yet. I'm going to continue to show them mercy in hopes that they will repent. But that day is past. But the reason that the Lord emphasizes here, or I should say Moses does, is to keep the people away from the corruption of idolatry. Why are we to wipe these people out? So that you don't get corrupted into following their ways. Which is unfortunately exactly what is going to happen most famously through Solomon, who took many foreign wives to himself and in order to make Pookie happy, made a temple for each one of their foreign gods. And Solomon did, wasn't enough just to build the temple because now Pookie says, well, you're not going to come and worship with me? I don't worship those gods. I thought you loved me. And now Solomon is worshiping foreign gods. And he introduced idolatry to the land of Israel. As many great successes as Solomon had, that was not one of them. Because Israel had been chosen by God to be a special. The word is segula in there. It's in this book over and over again. A treasured possession. Something unique, right? They were to be a light to the nations. They were to show the world this is what righteousness looks like. It doesn't look like this depraved pagan idolatry. It looks like this. Justice. Righteousness. They were also to be a kingdom of priests. They were to show the whole world who the true and living God was. We watched in the book of Genesis how the knowledge of God that was once universal was lost until God restored it through Abraham. So God is saying, you've got to be my representatives to the world so that they know that these false gods they're worshiping are not true gods. Also, God chose them to preserve the line of the Messiah. Messiah has always been promised since the beginning of Genesis that the Messiah is coming and God is preserving the line through which he will bring about the Messiah, who, of course, was Jesus himself. To be his testimony to the whole world. This is what God is like. This is how he deals with his people. This is how he deals with his enemies. And these are the kinds of laws that he institutes. It remains a testimony to this day because here we are. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, I'm doing this because of the promises I made to your fathers, most notably Abraham. He says, go out from your father, go out from your land, and I will make of you a great nation. Yeah, and I will bless all the nations through you. God says, I'm keeping that promise, the one I made to Isaac, the one I made to Jacob, and I'm continuing that through you. But here, Moses is reminding them that they were not chosen by their own merit. This is a very important verse. Remember we talked about the continuity and the discontinuity between the old covenant and the new? This piece remains the same, that it was never by works. It was always through the grace of God. Look at verse 7 again. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. He says, I didn't choose you because you're so great. I chose you because I love you. It's my love. It's my grace. Just the same, we Christians are not saved on the basis of works. We are saved through the love and the grace of Jesus. 
For God so loved the world. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Pretty plain when you read verses like this, that when Paul was writing these these gospels, every element that was needed to fully understand what Jesus had done on the cross was already revealed through the Old Testament. Because he says even even Israel wasn't chosen by their works. That's where they got it wrong, right? Because later on, they're talking about how great we are and our law is so great and our traditions are so wonderful and they're better than everybody else's. God doesn't like these Greeks. He just likes us. Meanwhile, in their very law, I was telling them, I only chose you because of my love and my grace for you. There was nothing particularly special about you. And the reason Moses says this here is because he's like, I'm going to drive out every other nation before you. And they're probably thinking, well, we must be something. And the Lord's like, no, no, you're not. I'm something. I chose you because you were a slave nation so they could show the whole world, hey, I don't need man's help. I can do this myself. And same thing for us in Christ Jesus. So that no one may boast. Why did God do it this way? So that nobody can act as if they deserved to be saved. Although there are folks that do act that way. I'd venture to say a lot of them probably aren't saved. If you strut around like God saved me because, or uh, if you're more like me, it's a little easier for God to get to you. I read a book that I otherwise liked about uh, biblical masculinity and how men can relate to God. And it was good up to a point. Then he had a whole chapter in there on how uh, women are more predisposed and are easier to be saved than men because of the way God made them. It was the most bizarre turn in the middle of this book that was all about, hey, it's okay, God made you a man. And then he's like, women have an easier time believing the gospel. I'm like, I don't think you understand the gospel very well, if that's what you think. You might know lots of things about men and women, but the gospel is, is not given to anybody who has an advantage, right? That's the exact opposite of what God does, right? Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. There's nothing about you that can stay when you get saved, amen? You've got to die to yourself first. No one gets to boast. No one gets to strut around saying our people are better or our folks are better. You see a lot of that these days, unfortunately, and through all days, honestly. But neither, though, here's the other side of this. No one boasts before God, but I'll say this too. We're saved through grace, not works, so that nobody can despair before God. It's very, I'd say one of the most common, if not the most common conversation I have with people as a pastor is folks who are believers and are, in most cases, righteous people and are doing everything that they ought to be doing, but they just, they can't get a hold of it. They feel like it's not enough. I've got to do one more thing until I, if I can stop doing this, if I can stop drinking, if I can stop lying, if I can stop losing my temper, then I know God will love me and he'll save me. I'm always having to tell people, y'all, it's what Jesus did. It's not what you did. You know, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a worship pastor, I always have been, and, um, you know, people always love to come down on modern worship music, and there's a lot of good things to be said for that, right? A lot of it needs to be criticized. But one of the things I hear a lot is so many of these songs are just about joy and peace and how God provides, you know, reassurance. And it's like, well, why aren't we singing more songs about other things? It's, all right, I understand your point, but let's back up here. Th these are generations where there are more stressed out, anxious, fearful, depressed people than ever before. These are the kinds of songs that resonate 
These are the kinds of scriptural truths that need to be presented. Because there is no despair in Christ Jesus. You don't earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. If you could, you'd have to. That's why God did it all himself, so that it would be all on him. Accepting God's grace liberates you from the need to perform and earn salvation. Just like with the children of Israel. He's trying to tell them here. He says, I'm going to bring you in because I love you. But don't, don't get uppity and think, well, this makes us so special. We really are the best nation. We're God's favorites, I think. And God goes, that's not why we did this. Same thing for you and me, right? Some people are like, well, I've been saved my whole life. Not like these, you know, new believers over here. Or you can flip that over. It's like, hey, we got radically saved. You guys have just been doing this. Yo. You don't even know what it's like. That's not what we do in Christ Jesus. And like Israel, our commission to the world requires us to stay separate from sin so that we don't likewise get corrupted and are not able to herald God's love to the world. This is what the church exists to do, is to bring that love to more people, as many people as possible. So when we use terms like, like chosen, guys, when we get into terms like election and predestination, if you ever worry, what if I'm not chosen? The, the, the invitation is extended to you. Receive it. Then you can know. <laughs> then you can know. Because that's what the Lord tells us to do. He says, hey, if I've, I've, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Oh, man, I hope I'm chosen. The Lord's like, just believe. I told you what to do. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Lord will sort out all the theology of it in heaven someday. My job is to call you to be saved. Just a wonderful thing. If you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, man, today needs to be your day. Verse 9, let's continue here. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's that word chesed that we talked about not long ago. With those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generation and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So blessing will last for a thousand generation Retribution comes immediately. That's the Lord's grace overshadowing his wrath, which I love. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He'll repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. You can see the Abrahamic blessings there. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed among all peoples. There shall be not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. It's gotta be a comforting verse, right? And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. So when we get to the book of Joshua and you start feeling bad for the Canaanites, the Lord has commanded them and thereby us not to pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. This is a description of the covenant nature of God. That he rewards those who are faithful to his covenant and punishes those who are not. We might better say chastises those who are not, that they might repent. And Moses is laying out this wonderful picture of all the blessings that are going to come. He's saying, if you don't keep the commandments, this is what you're missing out on. 
These are the benefits of the Lord, right? The psalm says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Been haggling with my insurance company lately over the benefits that I'm supposed to get. We have different opinions on what we should be benefited. But with the Lord, he's laid it all right out there in front of us, and we're told not to forget them. We talked about this at length. I don't want to get into it again. But God's commandments are not burdensome. They're for your good. You do what God says, it's going to go better for you. The experience of the blessing God promised was tied to their obedience in response to his grace. God is not saying, I'll bless you if and only if you serve me. He says, I chose you and I'm going to bless you. If you serve me, that will continue. If you don't, I will take it away so that I can get your attention and bring you back to where you're supposed to be. But that's not really a warning here yet. What he's telling them is, if you go in there and serve me, here's what I'm going to do for you. We're in a covenant together, right? We're compared in other places. We're married now, right? You gave the blessings of what you'd receive living in my house. You're going to be victorious. You're going to go in and fight these other nations and you're going to win because I'm with you. And the Christian is likewise assured of victory in his sanctification if he continues in the salvation that God has given, if he abides, to use John's favorite word from Jesus. We are assured of victory. We just talked about that grace, that free grace of God that draws us to himself and saves us. And then now when we start to go through the sanctification process, we might, sometimes we just go, you know what, I, I just, I'll white knuckle it until heaven. I won't really worry about it. I'll just try my best to live and not denounce Jesus. But that's not how the Lord describes this Christian life. He says, I want to give you victory. I want to give you abundance. I want you to be more than a conqueror through me who loved you. And those victories over sin, those victories through suffering, the victories in relationships that are bringing you down, whatever it might be, the Lord commands you to overcome those things. Right? We, when we were Romans 6, we had a message that was entitled, Stop Sinning. Because that's kind of the message of that whole section. Stop sinning. You don't have to anymore. Right? James tells us to rejoice in every trial. We say things now, that's insensitive. You're invalidating my truth. James says, hey, it's sanctifying you. You're going to be more holy at the end of this. So rejoice. Now listen, would God give us those commandments if he didn't think that it was possible? He wouldn't, because God's not going to sit there and mock you. He's not just going to say, well, buck up. Yeah, I know your people have died in your life, but just rejoice, okay? Like, God, I can't do that. Or the Lord says, I've told you not only not to commit adultery, but never to lust after a woman. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. God, I can't do that. Well, you're going to have to. What does the Lord do? He says, how about this? I will wash you in my blood first. So that way all the sins are just done with. So we can stop worrying about that, okay? Your sin is forgiven. However, you don't want to live like this because sin makes life worse and you want to walk in righteousness. So how about this? What if I came and lived inside you? What if I came and lived in your heart and, and gave you all the power you needed to do everything? And, and if I, what if I were to make sure that I never let you get into something that you could not handle if you follow me and you lean into my grace and my spirit? Would that be okay? That's why we're, we're given victory, uh, reassured of victory, because God goes, man, I'm with you. 
I don't want you to sin because you don't have to because I'm within you sanctifying you. I want you to rejoice in every trial because I'm with you preserving you through every trial and you know that. Look at what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the Calvinist's least favorite verse. And then right after that, you get the Arminian's least favorite verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that. Andrew Murray wrote a whole book on that. That little verse is awesome. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Israel had prom been promised victory over the Canaanites. They still had to get in there and swing the swords. They were going to have victory because God said you will, but you got to go swing the swords. But other than that, without God's help, it was an impossible commandment. But God goes, don't you worry about that. I'm the one working in you. So in your life, you've got to work it out. You don't just say, well, I've got this sin, I guess, forever. No, you've got to attack that thing, right? Paul talks about training like an athlete to overcome your sin. When you, you can't just be the person, James says, who's tossed about through every false wind of doctrine because you haven't trained your mind. You haven't learned what the scriptures say. You haven't devoted yourself to Christ. Or through trials, you've got to go through it. You've got to work it out and do what you're supposed to do and improve and grow and move on. And you say, I can't. Yes, you can because God is with you. He works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the desire to do what's right and he gives you the power to do what's right. So then go do what's right. The Israelites had work to do, as do we, but it's all under the direction of God's power. So listen, you're going through life, you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with, with grief, you're struggling with whatever. And you know you've got to try to overcome it. And you're like, I just don't think I can do it. I just want to encourage you. If you have been chosen by Christ Jesus, are you saved? Well, yeah, of course I'm saved. Then man, how about a smile? Because you know that all of this is going to work in the end for your good, for your transformation, for God's glory. It's all going to result in you being more like Christ, better able to handle such things and able to help other people that are dealing with the same thing. You've got to take that time through those things and just say, God's with me, though. I can do this. I can do this. Verse 17. So we've looked at they were, they were called, right? They were chosen by God. They were promised victory at the end of it. The next little bit here is going to be about going through the process, right? So they have the struggle right now, the victory at the end. What's in the middle? If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them. Pause there. Are those actual hornets? Or is he using a figure of speech here? It's just kind of cool to think about the Lord sending armies of hornets from heaven to chase people away. Until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, 
lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it. For it is devoted to destruction. Haram. There it is again. Okay, so we started out. God has chosen you to be saved. And at the end of it, you're going to be saved. Victory is promised. All right. We hear that. And like verse 17, you say, I don't know about that. Go conquer all these nations of half-demon giants that are ravaging the promised land. I don't know if I can do that, Lord. And maybe you look at your life. The Lord says, you're going to overcome this and you're not going to deal with that sexual immorality anymore. I don't know, Lord, because I don't even know how to live life without this. Or you're going to get through this. This pain and this, this hurt that you just can't shake, you're going to have days where you're going to wake up and not even think about that. And you go, impossible. But what Moses does is he says, remember the victories you had in Egypt. Remember them 10 plagues that God sent when he turned the water to blood. And then all the frogs came out and covered the land. And then all the frogs died and they had to sweep all the frogs up in these big heaps. And then it was flies and gnats as they feasted on these frogs. And then the livestock died. And then there was locusts and there was the, fir uh, the firstborn that died and the darkness and the hail. God goes, what are you worried about? Then you come up to the Red Sea and you're about ready to kill Moses because you're stuck. And then the Lord parts the waters and then you go through and he shuts the waters on top of the greatest army in the world at the time. And then you come to the promised land and you see that there's some big people there and you go, I don't think we can do it. And God goes, oh, come on. Haven't you learned a little bit about me yet? Don't you know who I am yet? But he does comment that the victory is not going to come all at once. Do you see that in verse 22? Let's read it again. The Lord your God will not clear away these nations before you, or the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. It says, you're not going to just go through one big sweep and clear out the promised land, because then the process of inhabiting it and taking possession of it, the wild beasts will make it too difficult for you. You might say that there, there will be exposed to bandits and the guys on the fringe as they're still trying to get a handle on their new government and their new society. But he says that there is ultimate hope for them after this. He says, it's not going to happen all at once, but it's going to happen. Do you catch that? It's not going to happen all at once, but it's going to happen. That is so important for you and me to hear that victory might not happen all at once, but it will happen. God has chosen you. He's promised you victory, ultimately eternal life in heaven. And in the middle, you might say, but I'm not there yet. I want to be there now. You know, you hear testimonies of somebody that like, I stood up and I confessed that I was a liar and I've never lied since then. The Holy Spirit just empowered me. And you go, well, good for you. I'm not so blessed, unfortunately. I'm getting better, but man, I'm still, just still driving me crazy. And the Lord goes, hey man, that's fine. That's okay. 
The Lord does not always take things away right away. What he does is he enables you to grow and struggle and fight and eventually overcome. That's what we see in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Paul goes, what's wrong with me? Wretched man that I am. Ever look yourself in the mirror and say, wretched man that I am. Or woman, we want to be inclusive, you know, (laughs) wretched woman that I am. But then at Romans 8, what does he say? But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a real struggle, but it's a struggle unto victory. Right? There there are wars that are fought where the, the end is inevitable from the beginning. But there's still battles and there's struggles and back and forth that is fought. This is what the Lord is telling them. Sanctification is a process, not an event. Justification is an event. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I believe in the Lord Jesus, justified. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, learning to clean up your language, learning to set all your relationships right, learning how to endure suffering with the hope of Christ, that can take some time. Just like the children of Israel, we're not going to drive out all the inhabitants at once. God sometimes gives us victories slowly to keep us from boasting. Have you ever heard a bragamony before? Bragamony is a testimony that is really less about what God has done for me and much more a brag about how wonderful I am. There are two kinds of bragamonies. This wasn't in my notes. This is free. But I went, to a Christ- I went to a Christian school, so I saw a lot of this, okay? The first kind of bragamony is I gave up my sin, and you know what I've been doing since then? I'm a rock star, man. I pray 12 hours a day, and I go on every mission trip all over the world, and I've led 25 million people to Christ, and what's wrong with the rest of you? And makes you feel terrible about yourself. And it's super easy to get a bunch of people to come forward like that, because if you're like, well, I haven't done any of that, then you need to be down here. I've sat in those before. I'm thinking of someone in particular, actually. <laughs> he came every year, and it always drove me crazy. Like, what's wrong with you? And it's all the stuff. That, when I got saved, I did this, and I did that. What's wrong with you? It's like, easy, dude. That's one kind of bragamony. Here's the other kind. The other kind is when you're going to stand up and tell what God did for you. And most of it is going to be kind of sort of bragging about all the stuff you got into before you got saved. Let me tell you how much money I had before I found Jesus. Let me tell you about the women that I had. Let me tell you about the people that I rubbed shoulders with. And, you know, I, I was miserable and it wasn't any good. But, man, what a ride, you know, until, until Jesus got me and I got some out of time. But, yeah, you know, I got saved. That's the end. And this can be why the Lord leads us out of things slowly sometimes. To keep you humble. And also to keep you from failing in the absence of it. As, as sad as this is, sometimes when you have a, a grievous sin or some shortcoming in your life, if it were to be removed right away, you would immediately fill it back in with something else. Because you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. You go out every night partying. Now God removed partying from you. What are you going to do with all your time? You're going to get in trouble is what's going to happen. And the Lord is wise and knows that. And so there are radical transformations. And I'd venture to say in each of your lives, you've maybe had one or two things that God just handled right away in the moment. Maybe God healed your body one time. But then there's lots of other times where it was a process. And you went through everything. And you went through the doctors. And you went through all of that. And God still brought you out the other side. But it didn't happen in an instant. 
When our salvation is assured, we should not be unduly bothered or excited by the peaks and valleys of the Christian life. The way we evaluate progress is not by looking forward to where we want to be. Someday, I want to never lose my temper for the rest of my life. It's like, okay, that's a good goal, but you look at that, you're never going to be satisfied with it. I just want to be perfect like Jesus. Yeah, aim for that. The Bible says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the way you measure progress in the Christian life is not by looking forward, it's by looking backwards. Where did we used to be? Oh man, I'm just having such a hard time uh, you know, controlling my lust. Okay, yeah, we're praying for you, man. But what did it used to be like? Oh, don't, you don't even want to know what it used to be like. Well, that's called progress. That's called sanctification. And my, I used to just really be a nasty person to be around, and I was always backbiting and gossiping and lying, and, oh, pastor, I did it again. Well, how long has it been since last time? Oh, I don't know, years. Well, hey, praise the Lord. Repent for this one, don't get me wrong, but like, hey, that's not you anymore. You don't let your emotions beat you around like they used to. Well, that's just growing up. Uh, no, it's not. I've known a few grown-ups, as have some of you. <laughs> That's not normal, just moral and ethical progress and becoming a better and more spiritual person. That's just natural and normal. No, it's not. This is how the devil tricks us. He takes things that we see in the church that are unique to the church and unique to the Christian and tells us, well, everybody's like that. This is why you always need new believers coming in to remind us, no, it's not. You don't see this anywhere else. So ask yourself, are you more patient than you used to be? Are you more honest? Are you kinder? Do you serve more? Do you tithe more? Do you pray more? Then praise Jesus. You're driving the inhabitants out of the promised land. Keep going. This doesn't mean there's gonna be no failures or struggles in your life, but you must keep going. Again, Paul to the Philippians in chapter one, verse six. I am sure of this then he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who began the work? Who began the work? God did. Jesus did, right? So who's going to finish it? Jesus is going to finish it. God's going to finish it. So you're walking through it. Just trust that he's going to finish. God's got you in his hand. Remember that song? I don't know if they still sing it in the kids' room, but he's got the whole world in his hands. Isn't that true? He holds the seven stars in the palm of his hand. Remember that? God's got you. Well, I failed again. Well, get up and keep going, brother. Peter denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion, and the Lord made him the head of the church. He's got you. The temptation is to quit because you have not succeeded yet. But that's the only way to fail as a Christian, is to quit. Well, I'm just, I'm never going to get over this. Well, you're better than you used to be. Yeah, but I'm not where I want to be. I got to quit. No, that's, that's how you fail. The good news is that when you die or if we're raptured, the Lord is going to wrap up that whole process in one instant and you'll be glorified and you'll stand before him apart from your sin forever. You miss out on that if you quit. Trust that in the end, there will be no more Canaanites in this promised land. Whether on earth or in heaven, it's coming. And that should empower you and encourage you to keep trying. Keep trying. Chapter 8 now, verses 1 through 10. 
The whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Probably familiar to you from the mouth of Jesus, that verse. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The book of Hebrews picks that up. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Think of Moses gesturing behind him to the land that was right across the river as he described it like that. God was testing them in the wilderness. This verse here, in verse 3, always just catches my attention. In the wilderness, God said, I humbled you and let you hunger. I allowed you to suffer deprivation. I allowed you to be parched for thirst in the wilderness. I allowed you to be desperate for something to eat. I allowed your bags of grain and unleavened bread that you brought from Egypt to slowly get lower and lower and lower until you had the last handful in your hand. I let that happen so that I could send you manna, so that I could teach you. I could test you to see if you're going to keep my commandments. Like a father disciplines his son. A good father, anyway, who disciplines his son. <laughs> I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but it's just a reminder to us, you know. It's like, well, a, a parent's job is to allow a kid to explore what they want and kind of figure out who they are and, and then support them all the way. No, a father's job is to discipline his son and show him what's right and tell him what's right. And same thing for daughters and mothers, of course. There's a responsibility upon parents. The wilderness. Y'all know I love talking about the wilderness. Y'all know I wrote a whole book on the wilderness and it's out there at the lobby. The wilderness in the Bible is a symbol of trial. And I mean not just like a hard time. I mean trial like trying something, testing something. It's a symbol of upheaval. It's a symbol of uncertainty. It's a symbol of growth and potential and change, positive and negative. Every hero of God goes into the wilderness to train, whether literally or figuratively, usually literally, right? Joseph was carried through the wilderness when he was brought to Egypt. Jacob went out into the wilderness after he deceived his father and his brother. David spent a lot of time in the wilderness, both before he was king and then uh, when Saul was chasing him around. And then when Absalom sent him out, he was back in the wilderness again. Elijah spent time in the brook Cherith. Elisha went with him into the wilderness before he began his ministry. John the Baptist was the voice crying out, in the wilderness! And in Matthew chapter 4, after his baptism, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, you can see the, how Jesus becomes a symbol, a type of the children of Israel here. He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, you might translate that, since you are the son of God, God had just announced who he was at the Jordan River. He says, oh, look who it is. It's the big shot son of God. All right, you're hungry. So command those stones to become loaves of bread. Make some manna, son of God. But Jesus answered, it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul spent time in Arabia. You can go on. God's leaders and heroes had to spend time in the wilderness to train, to learn. Israel was learning to trust God that when we were in the desert and had nothing, bread snowed in the morning. So we are not really worried when we get to the promised land if the crops fail. We're going to trust the Lord. We're not going to be tempted to go and worship Baal, the storm god, so that we have a good harvest. Or go and, and commit sexual immorality at the, the temples of Asherah because she's fertility goddess and she'll bring about a great harvest. Ah, God can snow bread if he wants to. We, he's got this. He was teaching them and training them. Oh, there's a drought. There's no water. It's like, well, God got water from a rock. So, you know, I'm not worried about this. And we each have our own lessons to learn when God allows us to hunger, when he brings us to a place. He lets us get pressed. Why would God do this to me? Because he's trying to teach you something. He's trying to sharpen and strengthen your soul. And I know that we are so allergic to, I mean, inconvenience, never mind suffering. This is how the Lord teaches his people. There are three different ways you can go into the wilderness. Number one is through internal pressure. This is when you've got something that's wrong in your heart and you refuse to fix it and it blows up. And now a relationship is broken. A job has been lost. You maybe just in your own head just can't handle something. You're in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. You're, you're coming out of bondage, but you're not there yet. Or number two, you can enter the wilderness through an external catastrophe. This is something that is not your fault. It's something that happens to you. War throws everybody into the wilderness. Because now all of a sudden we are in uncharted territory. We don't know what's coming next. We're hungering, you understand, right? The death of a family member. Somebody mistreating you. You know, a pandemic is an external catastrophe. We're all in the wilderness together. And you know what happens in the wilderness. When you're hungry, you're not really worried about being refined anymore. All pretension falls away and you see what you're really like, which is why in the wilderness is where you can grow. So when you enter times of catastrophe like that, you start to see who people really are. And number three, the third way you can enter the wilderness, and this is the best one, is through spiritual courage. You can just decide to go to the wilderness to let God strengthen you there. Jesus Christ, Luke 6, would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus spent a lot of time in the wilderness. So did David, so did Elijah. When Elijah was preparing to go to Mount Carmel, he was in the wilderness. When Mark Carmel was over and Jezebel was trying to kill him, he went back to the wilderness. Before he ascended to heaven, he went over the Jordan and back into the wilderness. You know how to get to that place through spiritual discipline, through humility, through prayer, through fasting, through voluntarily depriving yourself so that you can grow. You let yourself be taken to the edge by God and then changed there. You got to know that when you're exercising, 
When it hurts is when you're starting to get some progress. If you stop lifting when your muscles start to get stiff and tense, you're not going to grow. If you stop running when your heart beats fast, then you're not going to get any faster. Because it's at the edge when you're pushing it and the pain is starting to come and you're starting, I don't know if I can do this. That's when the improvement comes. It's the same thing in the spirit. Well, things are all good and things are all nice. Okay, that's fine. But you've got to be voluntarily taking yourself to the edge with the Lord or with some trusted brothers, fasting, praying, denying yourself for a time so that you can see what you're like in those moments and that God can teach you things. You're never going to encounter the blessings of sanctification if you are never hungry or never thirsty. So you've got to let the Spirit drive you out into the wilderness. It's going to happen one way or another. Some of y'all are in there right now. You're in a time of change and you don't know how it's going to work out at the end. This can be small things, it can be big things. Right? I mean, every time there's a threat of war, we're kind of hovering on the edge. Are we going into the wilderness or aren't we? Or, I mean, when you just... You know, you have an encounter at work that throws you off and you get really angry and your temper flares and you realize, what is this temper thing I got going on? That's not good. You can go into the wilderness and say, Lord, let's work on this. Let's not cover this up. Let's not back off. Let's lean into it and see what's there. That's how you overcome enemies, right? So we had at the beginning, God had saved us by his grace and he promises us victory. In the meantime, there's a process. You've got to get rid of the, of the enemies. Well, how do you become the kind of person that can defeat those giants? It's by training in the wilderness with the Lord, letting him take you there, letting him take you to this place. This is what church is supposed to be in a lot of ways. Church is supposed to bring you to that place of spiritual change. This is why we have music. This is why we have preaching where there should be some skill and some emotion into it. Because you're engaging the soul and bringing it to this place where you're like, this isn't right in me. It's got to change. That's what church is for. You can do this on your own, but it's better to do it with each other. And this is why Christians die so well. Because we've been doing it week in and week out our whole lives. We come to the end, we know what's coming. We know who's waiting for us on the other side. Christians come to the churches, and if it's a good church, and it's, it's not, not uncommon for you to sit there and be brought to tears, or to be joyfully shouting before the Lord, or to, be, or to face something about yourself that you never wanted to think about ever again, but the Lord reaches down and pulls it up and says, hey, what's this? Oh, don't talk about that. No, I want to talk about that. That's how sanctification happens. God is a good father. He did it for Israel. Oh, we'll serve you forever, Lord. He goes, okay, let's see what you like when you're hungry. We should have stayed in Egypt. Well, guess what? I can make bread from nothing. So how do you like that? Well, we're still thirsty. Moses, go whack that rock with your stick real quick and get some water out of there. He was teaching them. He was training them. The Lord does that for you too. That's how you become the kind of man or woman who can defeat the giants in your life. Verse 11, coming to the end of the chapter now. Take care lest you forget. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. So notice forgetting there is not like mental. Oh yeah, the Lord. No, yeah, forgot about that. No, you forget by not keeping his commandments. Kind of like when it says the Lord remembered. It's not that the Lord had forgotten. It's that the Lord was now choosing to act upon what he had said before. Same thing. Last, verse 12, when you have eaten and are full 
and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, descriptive of our nation right there, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. He warns them, don't forget and turn to other gods in your pride. Early on, they're not going to dare to chase after these other, other gods. Too, too recent in their memory. They're, they're, they're in the moment. But Moses says, when the need is over, when you're no longer in the wilderness, but you're in the land, there's a whole other threat that's going to come upon you. And this is the danger for all of us. We fight through suffering. We fight through personal sins. We fight through relationship troubles, clinging to God. When you're in, oh, Lord, don't leave me, Jesus. I need you. Oh, I need thee. How I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. But then once you've achieved victory, you go, hey, thanks, God. See you later. This is why some people accuse Christians of treating God like a crutch. Because some do. And maybe that's the only kind of Christian they've ever encountered. I don't know if you can rightly call such a person a Christian. They're religious, maybe. But, wow, just when God, when I'm down, God, help me. And then everything gets good and you go, you know what? I can miss a week of church. You know what? I I don't need to read my Bible and pray today. You know what? I I don't need to agree with everything in this book. I mean, you know, times change. That's what happens, man. And when you're in the middle of one of those things, you think to yourself, I'll never forget this. Then the next time rolls around, you say, well, I don't know if God wants to do it this time. You know, great empires Look through history. Great empires have a record of not being defeated, but collapsing inward. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. You know, Persia didn't conquer Babylon. They just kind of walked in. And everybody was so drunk out of their mind, they just kind of took over. And all the people were kind of glad, well, at least we have some government again. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? Walking on the hanging gardens of Babylon. He's like, man, I am pretty impressive. Look at what I have done. And then the Lord said, oh yeah? Is that what you think? Well, now let him think he's a cow for seven years. And now instead of saying, look how great my hands are and what I've done, he's saying, moo. My Lord, are you all right? Moo. And he's nibbling on the hanging gardens and trying to, like, my Lord, come away from there. He's like, moo. And they're like, something's wrong with Nebuchadnezzar. And you're laughing. They were probably laughing too. That was the point. He was humiliating him. And for seven years, they said he was out in the fields. You don't, they probably had like a King Nebuchadnezzar guard. Their job was to sit there and make sure nobody killed the cow king. <laughs> and they're watching him out there. His hair's going long and his nails are long. And he's, you know, snuffling around in the dirt for 
food, and they're like, what are we doing here? And they're sitting there. Like, you, you know those guys were making fun of King Nebuchadnezzar. And then when he looked up, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, it's the Lord that has done this, God restored his mind. And the first thing he did is he came back and he made a proclamation that the Lord is the one true and living God. That's what happens, though. Think, ha, how ridiculous that you would do something like that. Oh, really? The Lord told the church in Revelation 3, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What does it mean to be lukewarm? What does it look like? For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is why it's so hard for prosperous people to find God. This is why it's easy to go and preach the gospel in, a, in a, like a third world country. Because they know good and well they need God. You come here and you say, hey, you know that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins? And you're like, get out of here with that. What do I need Jesus for? I'm a rugged individualist. I'm a somebody, man. Don't you know, like, do you see that car? That's my car. What do you think I need Jesus for? I can't remember who said this, but I saw, ran across some quote online where somebody was like, might have been an athlete now that I think about it, but, you know, somebody like said something to the effect of, you know, didn't the Bible say that we're supposed to be humble? And he said, like, that's for poor people. And he was kind of half joking, but you kind of get the sentiment there, don't you? He's like, that's what losers say to cover the fact that they're losers. That's what Friedrich Nietzsche's point was. Christianity is just, it makes the suckers feel good about being suckers. And the Lord goes, oh, is that it? That's why Jesus said it is so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says, you who desire to be rich, enter into a snare. As afraid as you are at the beginning of the journey, as unsure as you are in the middle, once you've gone through the wilderness and defeated your enemies, don't get to the end and praise yourself. Pastor Chuck used to drive the church growth people crazy because Calvary Chapel was enormous, planting churches all over the world, and they'd invite him to these conferences, and they'd say, Pastor Chuck, tell us how you did it. And he'd go, I didn't do anything. It was the Lord that did that. God did it. It's God who adds to the church data. Not any of this stuff. They kind of stopped inviting him after a while. I've had folks come to me, and they'd say, hey, look, you know, the church growth experts say da 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 and I don't hate all of that stuff. Some of it's just common sense, you know, like make people make sure they can see your sign from the road. But, you know, I've had to tell them very kindly, we're not doing that. Because I don't want to ever be able to say, I did this. That's why we are constantly saying, and it makes some of you all sick, this church is going to be built by prayer or not at all. If we cannot have prayer as the centerpiece of everything that we do and grow this church, then this church ain't growing. It's always God. And the minute you forget that, you are in danger of it all crashing down around you. The good news, though, is that that warning is not given to frighten you, but it's given in the context of God's promise to deliver you into the abundant life of your promised land. Enter the land, Christian. Fight the giants. Train in the wilderness. And you will see that victory in your life. Just don't fall away. Don't chase after other stuff. Don't go after what everybody else goes after. Because it's God that brought you here. Grace has brought us safe this far. And grace shall lead us home. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved for a purpose, for a whole life that God has laid out ahead of you. 
ending in either your death or our rapture. So get out and live it. Trust that he's going to bring you to the end. Even though you're going through it right now, you're going to go through it. Sanctification is a process. Take it one day at a time and trust the Lord who chose you for this life.